This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Marlene Sharp who is a, a producer and an entertainment executive which is also head poodle, head dog I should say, <laughs> of Pink Poodle. So Marlene, thanks so much for being a guest. I love that you crowned me head poodle. No one's ever done that before. That's so beautiful. I'm going to use it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's that's one of the only occasions where thinking things off the cuff tends to go well. <laughs> yeah. Yes, improv. <laughs> Improv's always best. Okay, so... When I was doing a little bit of research into yourself, I got a little bit giddy. So talk to me a little bit about how how you got started in the entertainment field firstly. So share a bit like backstory. Did you do it while you were growing up? That sort of thing. Sure. So I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, where it, it, when in my childhood, there was not really show business there. Uh, it's the deep south of the U.S. And... There were community theater productions and uh, the occasional film or TV shooting in town, but otherwise not, not a whole lot of show business going on there. But from a very early age, I felt like that was my destiny and that perhaps I was switched at birth with some daughter of a Beverly Hills mogul and, and, and that some family in Beverly Hills was missing their little baby who, who fit into their, um, their family so well, and who was like an aspiring mogul and actor and so forth. So I, I didn't really fit in in New Orleans all that well, but uh, nevertheless, I lived there until I was 21. And then uh, I went to, I went to all through um, Catholic grammar school and high school and, and also college. I went to Loyola University in New Orleans and tried to find show business as much as I could in, in, in the town. And uh, even as a, at a very young age, as soon as I was old enough to figure out, or my mom told me that uh, Sesame Street was in New York and I couldn't really meet Oscar the Grouch or Big Bird in my neighborhood. <laughs> It was somewhere far away, and she explained PBS and distribution as best as she could. And then I was I was hooked. I felt like, oh, I got to get out of New Orleans because this is not where anything happens. So, um, so then uh, I ended up going to graduate school at San Diego State University and studying musical theater. So I have an MFA in musical theater. So my original dream was to be an Oscar-winning actress and then um you know everything would fall into place from there that 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 get my oscar and then smooth sailing for the rest of my life and that is not what happened um i <laughs> i uh i had done a lot of theater in new orleans and just a tiny bit of film and tv and uh and then after san diego state i moved to los angeles and um I, I was always interested in the behind the scenes of the industry. So I liked writing and I felt like nobody wrote good parts for me like me. So, uh, so I thought that would be, that would be one way I could go, but I didn't come from a family with a lot of means and connections. I had to make my own way. So early, early on in moving to Los Angeles, I registered with a temp agency I don't know if that's a thing where you live, um, but temp work when I first moved to LA was, I mean, it, it was not anyone's career aspiration by any stretch, <laughs> but it was a, an option and you register with the temp agency. And then the idea is they place you in these short-term jobs. You're basically an administrative assistant at various places. And, um, and then some, sometimes those temporary assignments turn into full-time. So um, I started fast and furious with the temping. So for about two or three weeks, I was going to all these different places, one of which was Hustler Magazine. Uh, I temped there for a couple of days that, and um, knew that that was not the place for me. Um, but then 
after a couple of weeks, I landed at this company called Renaissance Atlantic Films, which was the, the consultancy of a gentleman named Frank Ward, who was very instrumental in bringing Power Rangers from Japan to the US. So he had been president of Bandai America. Uh, Bandai is the toy company that had the rights to the Power Rangers toys. And um, they were very instrumental part in developing the show, launching the show. Um, the, the toys needed to be figured prominently into the show because this show was all about selling toys to kids. So Frank um, had worked for the, the US office of Bandai, which is a Japanese company, and had been um, one of the key people, along with another gentleman named Haim Saban, in taking the rights to the TV show and the toys and bringing them to not only the US, but the rest of the world, because it was really just the thing in Japan. And then um, he retired from Bandai. And then he had this consultancy where Bandai was pretty much his number one client. But occasionally we would work with other companies, but it was mostly all Bandai all the time. And a big part of what we did was work on Power Rangers, um, making sure we, we would work a few seasons ahead of whatever season was airing in the US because we would take the footage, some of, some of the footage, it got to be less and less as the years went on and the budgets were able to get bigger based on the toy sales. But we, we would take, especially the action footage, like the martial arts, because that, that was um, very showy and the characters were wearing masks. Uh, live action show, for those who are not familiar, it's, um, it's a bunch of teenagers that wrote, the cast rotates in and out every few seasons and teenagers with special powers and then they turn into Power Rangers and fight costume character monsters and um, save the world. And uh, they have cool vehicles and gadgets and stuff like that. But that's that's the premise of the show. So uh, so all, a lot of those Saban and I partnership shows were things that we worked on and we were always looking out for the toy interest. So, so because Frank was a consultant engaged by Bandai, the, the toy company, uh, we had to make sure that the play pattern of the toys was represented accurately in the show. So, you know, if there was a, a shield, um, let's say, um, we, we, need to, we needed to make sure that it was, it was used and it was figured prominently in the show and it wasn't just like, hanging up on somebody's wall the whole time. And it, it needed to be portrayed in a cool manner so that kids would want to buy it. <clears throat> and then if something wasn't a toy, if there was a prop that was not a toy, also um, we, we kind of got pushed to the side unless it, it, it caught fire with the fans and, and then there, seemed, there would seem to be some justification to incorporate it. But I can't remember any instances of that happening. It was all very calculated. Um, so that was one thing that shocked me when I, I first started working there. I was Frank's assistant and there was um, one other employee. Uh, she was the director of development and then she left and then I was Frank's only employee. So I wore a lot of hats, but I remember when I first got there, I was completely shocked about the under the seedy underbelly of the kids entertainment world because nothing is really made for the the goodwill and uh, development of children <laughs> nothing's really altruistic i mean even the projects that might start out that way the reality is something needs to generate money or else no one will have a job anymore so with the kids business it's about selling toys and um, and the reason for that, there, there are a num number of reasons, but I really think the main reason is that the buyers of that content have gotten accustomed to not paying a lot of money for it. So the people who make that kind of content, they need to find some way to recoup their investment and, and uh, make a profit to sustain a business model. 
So um, it's not the same as making grown up content, in other words, where they're bigger dollars and it's more high profile and sexy, so to speak. The kids' business is kind of like the bastard child of the entertainment industry. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's sort of a pun. Yeah, it's it's a kids' content, bastard child, sad sad reality, but... um, this is this is the tough love angle of, of uh, the kids' business. You're getting the 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 dirty the the brutal truth. It's interesting how calculated it is. Like I know Power Rangers is about toy sales, and if if people listening track back and maybe they've seen the the series, maybe they haven't. You can tell they go all in on like the when they transform into their suits the cameras zoom in on particular aspects of the clothing like the gloves or the helmets and it makes kids get a bit excited you know they're turning into power rangers and all of a sudden the kids want to be a power ranger to a certain extent absolutely and that is that is a trope. I mean, the, the transformation sequence, that's what we call it in the business. The transformation sequence is very important. And if you look back on a lot of those Saban shows, Fox, Fox, I call them Saban Fox Kids Network because when I was working there, they were, now they're, they, the ownership of that whole category, that whole catalog has changed hands several times. And so now I think, Hasbro owns a lot of that stuff. Um, but uh, the, a lot of those shows that were inspired by Power Rangers, they all have transformation sequences in them. And the, the, that's, that's the formula because you can sell two sets of toys that way, at least two sets of action figures because you've got the kids in the plain clothes. Then you've got the costume change of the cool action s- stuff. and um, and the, the toy industry is such that, um, like, there's a there's a refresh of the inventory that a, a major refresh that happens essentially twice a year. So the so if you want your product to be on the shelf and figured prominently, you need to refresh the toys with costume changes and accessories and things like that. And that's another reason why the cast would change every so often, because then they make new toys based on the different people who play the the characters. So, yeah, I mean, it is transformation sequences are such a hallmark of especially those um, like a lot of Japanese anime, early anime shows and um, lots of lots of action shows, really. And and it's not really all that different than like um, comic book characters like going back to Clark Kent and Superman, right? I mean, if I had to buy a doll, I'd probably, I'd want the Clark Kent because I, I like that, that vintage <laughs> realistic yeah. look, but I think most people would disagree. They want the cool Superman and in his, in his outfit and whatnot. And the same with Batman and all that. So how far ahead would you have to plan and how much is like moving around how many parts are there because it sounds like you need to have everything lined up ready to match things yeah. toy production which then yes. they have to be ahead as well like just how far ahead do you have to start planning things because a lot of people in like the business world or the toy world or manufacturing they may not necessarily have a realistic picture of just how far ahead you have to plan to match everybody else's scheduling and their planning and how far they have to go and paint a bit of a picture about that because some people might need a bit more of a realistic aim for things that they're producing themselves. Yeah, that's that's a good question and it doesn't really have a concrete answer. It's usually a negotiation between the toy people and the content production people. Um, often it leads to a lot of fighting, which um, was my experience working on Sonic Boom, um, the Sonic the Hedgehog show on Cartoon Network. And I, I won't go too deep into that, but 
it, it's often a, a contest of wills, like who who has the most power? Like, are we gonna let these these toy people tell us what to do and then we're compromising our art, whereas the toy people are the ones making the money for the whole kit and caboodle. So if the toy people feel that the content is not working, then they're either gonna pu pull the plug altogether or they're going to um, want some, they're gonna ask for some major changes. And a lot of times the people working on the content, I mean, sometimes it, it's just different. Like every scenario is different. There's not really a cookie cutter way to make merchandise driven entertainment, but there are common things, the, the patterns that I've seen. But a lot of times the there are many stakeholders. So like if there's um, a, let's say, there's a toy company that owns the underlying rights, but they're partnering with an animation studio that's like a third-party animation studio. The animation studio will have some kind of royalty participation in the toy sales because what they're making is taking the place of advertising for or, or commercials for the toys. That that's what the, the content is the commercial for the toys. It's just um it's kind of a smarter way to do it really because when you think about it, a commercial is just a sunk cost. Like sure the idea is for people to watch the commercial and then drive the consumer behavior to go buy stuff. But those commercials are outdated very quickly. And um and they're not going to generate revenue on their own they're just they're going to um hopefully do their job and sell the toys but it, it costs the um the, the ip owner the stakeholders money to put those commercials on networks and um with the content often there is a cost involved to place it on a network but at least over the long term it can be distributed and there's a chance to recoup some of that money, the production money, as well as sell the toys. And I think that's that's another reason why networks and various other buyers don't pay as much for kids' content because way back in the 80s or something, uh, I guess networks got wind of the fact that like, hey, He-Man, the show, we're paying a huge amount of money for for this show to license this show for our network and then mattel is making all the money on the toys like why why are we losing out that way so let's just pay them a pittance at, as if we're airing their commercial you know anything we give them will be will, will be better than nothing and and then they can make their money back by selling all those toys so then that kind of thinking evolved through the years but now you see a lot of toy companies and, and merchandise. When I say toy companies, I also mean like anybody who sells stuff to kids. So that would include like video game companies or tabletop game companies, anything where, and or, or even like books, book publishers. Like when you think of Harry Potter, they will, uh, they'll often pull in other stakeholders, but there will be like some kind of a profit participation as part of the arrangement. And then, so the, that other entity will feel like, well, I have a hand in creating the next iteration of this property. So why isn't it my idea better? You know, I think what I'm going to do is going to sell more toys or it's going to be more artful or is going to win Oscars or whatever. And then you get a bunch of um, writers who are, really not stakeholders at all but they have the ego of stakeholders and then they have their own agenda they want to win emmys and they want to you know they feel that they're being hired for their creative genius and they want to exert their aesthetic and then fights ensue <laughs> it gets to be very cutthroat <laughs> and i would venture to say that there's more chance for fighting in kids merchandise driven entertainment than there is in grown-up stuff, because there's so many more people who could potentially start a fight, <laughs> a lot more stakeholders. And then, then the toys are like of primary importance 
So like that license, like the toy component drives all the other merchandise sales, or at least in the, in the thinking, like when companies are uh, creating these business, business models. So um, the thinking is that you need to get a master, then that's why they call it a master toy license. And then all the other licensees will come on board after that. It's very rare that you would get, you know, you would start a show and you would get an apparel company to come on board if there's not a toy company. It could happen, but it's just a lot more rare. There's a lot of old school thinking in the kids business where like, oh, a show will only sell toys if there are 26 half hours or, you know, the toy deal has to come first and toys won't sell at all if they don't have a TV show behind them. And we all know, I think that there are outliers because I mean, growing up, every toy that I played with did not have a TV show that went, I mean, Barbie, that's my, that was my go-to Barbie does not have a TV show. And I, I bought Barbies like crazy. So, um, but that, and that's, that's another another part of the old school thinking of the toy business it, it may be a little bit it may be evolving a little bit different differently now because of the streaming partners and just the way the media landscape is technology the rise of video games and things like that but I mean when I was working for Frank and on all the um Power Rangers and Digimon and various other things um this is what I heard a lot girls don't buy toys. Therefore, we can't make any shows for girls. The toys won't sell. And um, we need to make shows only for boys ages two to five, because those are the ones who buy toys. Hmm. And meaning those are the main demographic where they can sell the most toys to those boys ages two to five, which essentially means selling to their parents, the parents of boys ages two to five. But um, that used to make me so mad because I'm a toy a lifelong toy collector not just barbies all kinds of other stuff and um i'm a girl (laughs) and i (laughs) never did look and i used to i i love to watch cartoons as a kid but i would never say oh um i like to watch justice league so let me go buy uh you know a doll but i mean that that didn't connect with me at all i mean i did i like wonder woman but wonder woman had many different manifestations and if there was a wonder woman doll then great but if not then there were tons of barbies that i could choose from and and that had nothing to do with tv shows they would just have really cute little play sets and outfits and that that was of utmost importance to me but when there are a lot of um dudes running toy companies and they've been in the business for a hundred years uh, and they get stuck in this way of thinking, then that's kind of what happens, I suppose. It's fascinating when you think of children's television as a business model slash commercial for what it is that you're selling. It's almost like a continuous product placement type deal where like the products are just placed in the right spaces at the right times in the right way and then that would then drive sales kind of as just as a result of that yes yeah and it's not an exact science uh there are there's like tropes and ways of thinking like there are certain times of day where like if you have a show on disney jr like you want to get your show in that time slot because that's when the most kids are watching. And yes, that might be true, but it even if you have the best time slot and a lot of people are watching and you have a very what the the industry calls a toyetic property, you know, got a lot of to- potential to sell toys, it's not a slam dunk. It even the most calculated of campaigns can fall flat. And it's also very hard to introduce a new brand like um, Power Rangers is really old. (laughs) And all the things we've been talking about, um, Power Rangers and Pink Panther 
you had mentioned before. And um, I also worked on Postman Pat, British, a staple of British children, wow, yeah. ch British childhood. And, you know, that's been around for a long time. But even so, like, even when you have a tried and true brand, those aren't slam dunks either, because then you run the risk of alienating the existing fan base or the nostalgia factor fans <clears throat> by misstepping in some way. And um, and then there's a backlash and then the product doesn't sell. And then also there is not, even though this is this merchandise driven toy business model has been around for a long time, there's still not a meeting of the minds between the content people and the toy people on a seamless way to do it so that everybody's happy. And um, the timelines are often very different. And it, it, it depends on like, are you making movies and trying to align those with toys? Or is it TV series? Or is it like short form series? Or is it long form? You know, there's like so many nuances and um, and also, if you you need marketing assets, like you you can't just rely on the TV show itself to to attract people to the toys. Like you need to market your marketing materials. So you still need to somehow get the word out to watch for people to watch the show. And then, so there's there are assets being created, whether it's a live action show like Power Rangers or whether it's an animated show, there are art assets or props or whatever. And um, those need to be used for production, but then you also need them for marketing. And then who's going to create those and are they going to seamlessly mesh or will the, and, and that's, that's a constant struggle. Like, will the toys accurately represent what's in the show? And then also will the marketing materials support all of that and then who's making those marketing materials because then you might end up having like three different teams of artists and then to get all that art aligned it, it's more difficult than you would think and staying within a canon like a, a, a that that's super challenging especially with a heritage property like postman pat or sonic the hedgehog or Power Rangers, like what's canon and what's not, and who says, like, you know, where where do you go um, to 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 get the answer on that? It's all very um, tricky. When you say canon, what do you mean for those that don't know? So canon is like the official mythology of a franchise. So like um, like if you take Star Wars canon would be like okay darth vader is um the bad guy he's luke's father spoiler alert <laughs> uh he's he's luke's father but you know before before he had his bad turn he wasn't all bad you know like the the, the evolution of darth vader and then the, the fact that he's luke's father and leia's father and this and that that's all like and and it, it a lot of it will come from the person who created the IP. Like they'll decide like, this is, this is the official story. This is the official mythology. But like, if there's um, maybe like a YouTube series where, I mean, and I can't really think of anything that's like um, Star Wars, like something, I don't know, maybe like the Ewoks or something that's, I mean, they're in the universe. They're part of Star Wars. But like, if you're telling the official, official story of Star Wars, if you left out the Ewoks, a lot of people wouldn't be upset. <laughs> yeah, true. I yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of, there's, a, that, that is a, actually a good question. I'm trying to articulate it as best as I can, just from what I've observed. I mean, we had, when I worked at Sega, one of my coworkers, um, Aaron Weber, was like this Sega savant and Sonic savant. Like he, first of all, he started working for for Sega as a fan forum moderator when he was like 14. And then when he was 19, he was recruited by Sega away from college. So he dropped out of college, 
and he went to work full time for Sega at the age of 19, which is pretty much unheard of. He moved from Missouri to San Francisco, and he knows everything there is to know about the company and Sonic and just everything. And so he would often go toe to toe with Sonic Team, which is the Japanese contingent of artists, most of whom have worked at Sega for what seems like a million years. They worked on <laughs> Sonic since the beginning. They're like these sages, these Sonic sages. Yeah. They're the keeper of the Sonic canon. And by God, Aaron would go toe to toe with them and say, no, you got the history wrong. Like, d- d- <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't even think of any of the minutia at this point. But I mean, he he was amazing. People who even, <laughs> and people on Sonic Team had created certain characters in this universe. And just Aaron had this photographic memory of everything <laughs> that's ever been done. And so he would correct them. And oh man, that was that was awkward when that would happen. <laughs> oh, I bet. <laughs> that was quite awkward. But you know what? Aaron really showed everybody because he he was, when I worked at Sega of America, he was the um, community manager. So basically all of the social media, he was in charge of it. He, he's kind of a personality on his own. He's He has a fan base. He signs autographs at fan events and stuff. Cause he's been with the, he's in his thirties, but he's got this like hugely long track record of being with Sega, but he, um, he now works in Japan. So he, so the headquarters in Japan recruited Aaron to go and work at headquarters and really be in the room as one of the major decision makers of the franchise, because he's so knowledgeable and I swear he was never wrong. Like he, because he know he, he was a fanboy. So that, that's how he got to know all this stuff just by loving Sega's and, and Sonic so much that he, he just knew it. And it's very hard to reproduce that kind of passion. Like people like their jobs sometimes and can rally that kind of enthusiasm if they like their jobs. But like, if you, if you come to something because you just you feel that it speaks to you as a person and you want to spend all your free time playing the games or looking at the TV shows or whatever, it's really hard to duplicate that kind of passion. And that's the kind of passion that Aaron has. And he was never wrong, like about fan reactions to things and people pitching ideas for plot lines and games or shows and even the Sonic movie. Um, people would fight him but then they'd always come back (laughs) they'd come crawling back and uh I always thought that was interesting to watch that was a very that was a good education for me oh I can imagine it it's weird when a fan starts off knowing the inner details of something and you were part of the original team that created it and it's one of those things where someone's going to make a mistake and they have to be allowed to do that but then for the fan to correct it must feel a bit strange well and also um Aaron did there was a there were a lot of other factors going on because Aaron was uh, um not of the same stature as far as like his title at the company like Sonic Team is up here and Aaron was not he was like a, a, a middle management basically and then also Aaron is not Japanese and, you know, it's a Japanese company. And then these are a bunch of Japanese elder statesmen from Sega who have maybe worked the company for 25 years. And although Aaron at age 30 had a 16 year track record with Sega, still he's got the most adorable little baby face and he doesn't look, he doesn't look like a grizzled uh, executive. He, he looks very young. He has a very youthful spirit. So there's like a lot of factors that make the, the conflict even more dramatic. You know, there's the cultural differences, <laughs> yeah. the, the age and the, you know, the stature within the company, all this stuff. And, and besides the fact that he, he was, as much as he loved the franchise, he was not one of the 
he he never did create one of these characters. He just knew a lot about them. Whereas you know he he'd have these um, these uh, disagreements with people who actually created the characters. So if I'm right, Sonic was your more recent project, should we say? Was that the more recent thing for you? Um, well, as far as familiar fans, well, first of all, this is my most recent project. This is, this is Blanche <laughs> and she's, she's getting rather vocal during this interview. So I figured I might as well, um, own up to the fact that she's sitting right here. <laughs> so respect must be paid. Um, anyway, um, after I worked at Sega, I worked for another Japanese video game company that makes film and TV and other things based on their video game franchise and that company is called level five so there i worked on a lot of different properties that that are not quite as high profile as sonic but um i worked on yokai watch which is probably it, it's up there it, it's its popularity has declined through the years but when it when it was at its peak it was supposed to rival pokemon and then um level five has a lot of other titles that are well-respected and, and um, long-running, like Inazuma 11, their soccer or football franchise, and then um, the Layton series, and what else? Nino Kuni is another one. They're a bunch. So I, I worked for Level 5's Los Angeles office as um, the head of production for the film and TV offshoots of the games and um a lot of what we did was we we would have material that was developed and launched in japan first and then we had to localize it which is more than just dubbing it's uh it's quite a lot of work especially when a show in japan is considered family entertainment you know co-viewing for the whole family but then there are things in those, then, then we make distribution deals outside of Japan and then standards and practices at Disney US say, oh no, we can't show a um, naked boys, uh, even cartoon boys on Disney XD. <laughs> they need to have bathing suit bottoms on or whatever. And so, so then we would get into sometimes like rerouting storylines and editing and reanimating and rotoscoping and things where we we'd have to change things to match the standards and practices or cultural differences in the various places so um and then so so i worked at level five until almost the end of 2019 and then since then i have not worked well i am working on a franchise right now that is sort of well-known it's called young captain nemo and it's based on the jules verne source material Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea and but it's a a modern retelling or not a modern retelling it's about the descendants of the original captain nemo so present present ah, day yeah and so um that's an interesting exercise in staying faithful to a canon um it, it, it's interesting because it, there, it's it's not as if Captain Nemo was owned by a big studio since 1800 or whenever the original book was written. Um, the the books are public domain, but a lot of it's a familiar franchise to a lot of people because also Captain Nemo has been appropriated into other people's mythologies, like. Um, the character of Captain Nemo has appeared in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and there have been movies based on the Jules Verne books as well, and all all kinds of different things. So, like trying to trying to weed out there is not really a hard and fast canon, but there were we are the company um, that I'm working with on that Rain Shine Entertainment. There is a bit of a canon established with the book trilogy that so we optioned a book trilogy called the young captain nemo so there are things established in there but then if you go way way back to the origins of captain nemo 
it's there are things that are debatable because a lot of people have interpreted it through the years and it's not like one thing like Cinderella most people would know like the Disney version of of Cinderella but um and there is a Disney version of Captain Nemo as well as Nemo the little fish <laughs> and um Nemo's just a name that's out there so yeah it's it been interesting uh developing that but we 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 won't have any animation to show for a while. It's it's still in the development stages, but um, that's that's the big franchise that I'm working on now. I'd be curious about what lessons you carried with you over your career, from film to you mentioned a lot about merchandise and how everything's built essentially from the toys outwards and how the mm-hmm. the shows are built around the toys but what about if you combine sort of Postman Pat with Pink Panther and then moving over into the Sonic realm were there any lessons mm-hmm. that you carried with you that have almost informed it almost like principles you know things that are yeah. maybe moldable but might not change so much well, in my opinion, whoever is the major stakeholder, like whoever is investing the most money, I believe should have the most set. Okay, let me put it this way. Whoever is paying my paycheck should have the most say. <laughs> it all depends on who's paying me, okay? <laughs> so whoever's paying me should have all the rights and privileges that come along with paying me. <laughs> and, um, but I do tend to side with the merchandise people because that, that's, that's where the profit is being made. You know, like, I mean, it, it's tough because I, I say that and then I, I, I do feel partial to the people who are driving the revenue yeah, it all comes back to paying me, I guess. That, that's, that's what I've learned. Um, <laughs> but I'm usually working for the person who's the major stakeholder because it makes sense. They've got the money to pay people to work on the franchise. So I'm always in the best interest of keeping my job. And I don't really, or I try not to have any ego. I mean, I think I tell great stories and I have good ideas. I write good scripts and um, I've got this adorable dog here and, you know, she's dying to have a cameo and most things that I work on. And, um, <laughs> but I try not to have an ego about that stuff because I'm just one cog in this huge machine that's working on these things. There's such a, I mean, you look at an animated movie and the credits go on forever and that's not even including the people who worked on the toys and the Sometimes it'll have like marketing people in there, like people who work on marketing in the film, maybe for for the film. But like that's not there's so many people who are left out of those credits. And yet those credits go on forever. So like I feel like there's no room for me to be um, like, oh, my idea is best. I, I do have a lot of experience and I've 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 been insulted and abused by all kinds of people so I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons about trial and error and you know what might have a a likelihood of being successful or not but I try not to be too pushy about that because um, I just diplomacy I guess that that's the bottom line I try to be diplomatic but if I am going to have a bias it's going to be a bias for me being able to to make a living <laughs> which is is fair really in that you never know how things are going to go in the film world until you hit someone buying one of the the toys or the products that you sell through the film to realize whether the film's actually working or not yes and also this is another thing that i think it's difficult for fans to understand a TV show could be doing gangbusters in ratings and like popularity at chatter online and so forth. But if the merchandise isn't selling, that is a big problem. And now this is, this is with merchandise driven entertainment. It, it, if it's something like, like squid game doesn't have any merchandise yet, but I, I it's coming, I'm sure. Um, but 
you know, in the beginning, it was just about how many new subscribers Netflix got because Squid Game had this big word of mouth popularity and, you know, how many people watched it on Netflix. With a kid's show, you could have a ton of eyeballs on the show, but people might just not like the toys and the merchandise. And that's not really a hit. Um, and then vice versa, like if the toys could be really cute and adorable and maybe selling well, but the show is just not attracting viewers, um, it's actually less likely that a show would be canceled because of that, because as long as it's generating revenue, it's justifiable. But like if it's a if it's a broadcaster who's not behind the show for whatever reason, they might bury it in, in time slots or in blocks of programming that people don't see. And then, um, and that's not really, really good either because then it'll be harder to get like spin-off series or it's, it's very complicated that way. So it's, it's tough to, to um, quantify what is a hit? Like, how are you measuring a hit? And even if something wins a lot of awards, it might win a ton of awards. It might win Emmys for best writing or, you know, some kind of humanitarian award for portrayal of diversity and inclusion or something like that. But that is often like one of those things is often not enough to sustain multiple seasons. Um, it's kind of it's almost necessary to be a hit across all these different categories to to really have a long life. What I'd be curious to know from yourself, Marlene, is your thoughts on the shift over the decades, let's say, from sales-driven TV to download number TV as such. It's almost like we've gone from revenue from sales potentially carrying a film just because they get the budget to carry on making the programs mm -hmm. and now there's become this shift into views or download mm -hmm. numbers or how many eyeballs can you get and it's almost like you then sell advertising based on potential reach versus the conversions that you're probably used to experiencing in the past Shed mm -hmm. a bit about your thoughts, your like state of the union, if you will, in her quotes <laughs> of what the the film industry is like, and I'd just be happy to to really value what you think on how the industry is going. I think that people are scrambling, and nobody really knows. And in the past few years, there have been so many like out of the box hits, like things that like sleeper hits is, is what I mean, like. Squid Game, for instance, these surprises that happen because really the the streaming business and the down even even YouTube it's still like the early days of TV where it's almost the Wild West. I mean that there are certain learnings and takeaways from from the short history, but um, I I think every all the media companies are struggling to figure it out because. Other than Disney, um, I can't think of any other company that consistently has hit after hit after hit. Um, and, and Blanche feels very strongly about this, too, <laughs> that really nobody's <laughs> figured it out. And even, you know what, even Disney, I mean, they are very successful, obviously, but they um, they're not opposed to laying off a big huge amount of people if their theme parks don't perform or you know it's not like they there's just the sky's the limit it they are extremely careful in their spending and whatnot so i think nobody's really figured it out and i think that's also the point of of the entertainment business it's a business of intuition and taste and things that are not easily filed away in a database or whatever it's a lot of feelings and emotions and and people want to put that into spreadsheets and revenue projections and it's very hard it's very hard to do that it's a big old mess <laughs>
<laughs> the big home. <laughs> 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 so how will your current projects be different then? Because you've mentioned how complicated it is, how calculated every move has to be. How do you see the future of your projects looking? Are you going to do things differently? Are you going to have to think longer term with it? Is that going to inform what you do in the short term? How are future films going to differ from how things are or how things have been? I think people are just watching trends that emerge and new technology and just trying to be flexible um i'm not really dictating policy at at brain shine or um any anywhere else for that matter even at pink poodle productions we all can see blanche is the boss here i'm just i'm just a worker (laughs) so (laughs) so i think staying flexible and current with just Every day, there's some new weird thing that happens, um, and not just with technology, but with the world. Look at COVID. Who could have predicted that? I mean, maybe somebody could have, but not me. Um, so I think just like staying flexible and um, and just being curious, having a genuine curiosity about what's going on, and and being open to talking to people from all different places in the world and not just people in the industry but people in adjacent industries because there's so much cross-pollination now and a hit could come from the most unlikely place that's definitely one thing to ponder about a little bit this idea of anything can happen you never know everything can appear out of nowhere is that engineered at all? Do you create the space for that potential or does it literally come out of the blue and no one could have predicted it? I think there are a lot of people out there, excuse me, not just people, but companies trying to catch lightning in a bottle, trying to manufacture the magic, of course. Um, and, and some managed to do it rather consistently or if it's even if it's not consistent um if they have like a big enough slam dunk that can carry some of the misses that ensue um but yeah i mean it's all risky it's it's all risk and it just depends how much risk a stakeholder can bear and um sometimes sometimes it's really i think it's not that much different than buying a bunch of lottery tickets or sending out a lot of resumes is some of it is a numbers game. And then, and then you, you try to plan as best as you can, but there's weird stuff that happens all the time that is not easily predicted. Yeah, for sure. I imagine you need to have some kind of strategy for reducing risk maybe. And you know, did you have like anything you can outline for us for, okay, we need to reduce the risk here. How would you go about doing it? Well, case studies, that, that's, that's helpful. If you, if you think of, if you have your idea in mind for a new property, you can look at other examples that are similar in demographic and the way that they've grown through the years and, yeah, I, I think case studies and, and comps, I mean, that's used a lot to make revenue projections, especially like on distribution, um, content distribution, and even even toy sales. You'll, you'll look at what's come before, but um, there are certain intangibles and, um, you know, people who are, let's say, making toys or content that let's, okay, like people who make tabletop games, for instance, and card games and things like that. That that was a pretty modest business until COVID hit. And then it's like it had this, I mean, that's pretty old school, tabletop and card games and all that. that, that, that those things have been around hundreds of years. And, um, and then COVID hit and then it seems like 
there, for a while anyway, there was an endless appetite for that stuff because people were stuck at home. And then suddenly they, they get tired of looking at a screen all day. So they want to, they want to mix it up a bit. So um, it, it, it requires case studies, but also looking at trends just in the world in general and, and trying to predict behavior. Before we get to the last couple of questions, one of the things that we skimmed over a little bit, but I want to bring up now, is your ability to handle rejection combined with how you manage your ego, because you've got quite the track record, lots of successes, lots of failures along the way as well. You mentioned trying to swallow your pride a little bit and how you manage your your ego i would be extremely curious to hear how you manage that whether you've got some practices some mantras that you tell yourself whatever it is i'd be really curious to hear what your (laughs) strategy is about managing things like that because your track record would say that it's deserved to a certain extent but you still have to manage it as well because there can be some dangerous consequences. So how do you manage your own ego in the film industry? I fly by the seat of my pants. I am so happy that I fooled you. That it looks like I have it all together because I don't <laughs> I, I don't know. I, in fact, every day that I wake up, it's like, I'm still here. I how did how did this happen? How did I live so long? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's uh it's all a mystery to me but um i do i i want to give an endorsement for having a therapy animal because i feel like the last um 13 years with with blanche here has been um very rewarding and uh she's my one and only dog i didn't have pets growing up and and here she is and so I, I, I try, I try to be strong for her (laughs) because she relies on me. So there's that. And then, um, I, I like to read a lot and, and also I like to listen to podcasts and I like to, um, watch movies and I, I like to partake in content as a consumer and even toys, but I find that if I can rebel a little bit, I mean, this is such a minor rebellion, but it makes me feel naughty. So I I do it like anything that is as far away from kids and family entertainment as I can get. That's what I like to do in my spare time. So like podcasts, it's like almost a hundred percent true crime and like hardcore, like jeopardy and murder and serial killers and stuff like that and i feel like i'm not like somebody who um will just watch kid and family entertainment for the heck of it because i love it like if that it's my job and it's my responsibility to be knowledgeable about those things but i need to rebel in my own time and the way that i rebel (laughs) is to is to go the other way (laughs) so um I don't know that kind of I feel like that that's an okay rebellion because it's not hurting anybody and uh I try I try I try to keep the other forms of rebellion to a minimum <laughs> you know things that are self-destructive um I I am I I I I do have a terrible vice in um I do like to vent I do like to gossip I'm a terrible gossip and I have gotten in trouble for that before so, but it just feels so good. <laughs> I love to talk about horrible things behind people's back. It's much it's far more terrifying to confront people to their faces. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know. These are not, I should also say, these, these are things that work for me flying by the seat of my pants. I'm not, other than getting a therapy dog, I'm not really endorsing any of these as a lifestyle or even a, a a go-to coping skill, but I'm just saying what, and I do like to take naps. That's another thing. If I can take a nap, that is like the biggest luxury. So if you can grab a nap, that's very good. Well, if people wanted to find out more about yourself, Marlene, where can they go? You mentioned Pink Poodle and other things. So here's your chance. How can people learn more about you? 
so my website is pinkpoodleproductions.com and my email address through through pink poodle is just marlene at pinkpoodleproductions.com and my most favorite social media is LinkedIn. I am a maniac on LinkedIn. And thank you for accepting my invitation this morning, Michael. I really appreciate that. No problem. I love it. And that is a wonderful platform to find work, to hire people, to connect, to make friends. I, I love it because I'm, I'm not so interested about seeing people's vacation photos or their plate of food at lunchtime, like you'll see on Facebook, but I am interested in staying employed and collaborating with cool people. So that's why that's what LinkedIn is for. So I am wholehearted, uh, wholeheartedly endorsing LinkedIn, but I'm all, I am also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So you can just Look for Marlene Sharp and I'll I'll be there. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. For those that are listening, make sure you subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss any of our future episodes. Leave a review wherever you are listening into your podcast and feel free to share the show, tell others, spread the word and I look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode. If you want to join a community of like-minded people that are on the journey for health, wealth and happiness, then my fulfillment community, my inner circle, is for you. You get continuous support from myself and also the opportunity to be supported, helped, guided and collaborate with the other members as well and also you get the chance to ask my podcast guests questions plenty of people in there already so if you click the link in the description for the episode you get access to a two-month free trial and you're under no obligation to continue and you can cancel whenever you want hopefully i'll see you there and i look forward to helping you on your journey